Welcome to the Teach Me Lit podcast. I'm Sophie Tuvey and I love talking about books and helping you to revise for English literature and go deeper in the texts you're studying. Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice The main concern of the novel is the plight of poor single women. To what extent do you agree with this statement? Well, a good place to start with this um, exam question is the very first line of the novel, um, perhaps one of the most famous lines in chapter one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now, what's ironic about that statement is that actually the reverse is also true. So a truth universally acknowledged, a single woman without possession of a good fortune must be in want of a husband. So from the very beginning, the focus of the novel is on single people looking for marriage and looking for different things out of that marriage. Presumably, um, the man is looking for companionship. The woman is looking for economic stability and, in fact, sustenance to survive. This is one of the main forces of satire in the novel, that women are placed in this position that renders them pretty desperate for anyone. Um, And what Austen does is, through different characters, depicts the situation of single women particularly when they are without fortune. So we're obviously introduced, first of all, to the Bennett girls. And they're in a, an interesting situation. They've been brought up as gentle women. They are not working women. Um, but their estate is entailed away from them. So on the death of their father, they will not inherit his estate. It will pass to the nearest male relative, which happens to be Mr. Collins. So they don't really have any fortune to speak of. They don't really have any inheritance to speak of. They have a fairly basic um, kind of £1,000 dowry to take away with them when they get married. But that's about it. So the Bennett girls are not working girls. And then therefore, marriage is pretty much the only option they've got for securing their own future. Because the older they get, the older their father's going to get, the more likely it is they will end up being turned out of their own home. So we have the situation of Jane and Elizabeth, particularly as the eldest daughters, but it is something that obviously will affect the others as well as the novel progresses. What's interesting enough, though, is neither Jane nor Elizabeth in the course of the novel, feel particularly desperate to get married. They are both um, in their very early 20s. And so it's not a particularly pressing issue for them. It is for their mother. And Mrs. Bennet, throughout the entire novel, is completely obsessed with the idea of getting all of her daughters married. Now, we do have other women in the novel for whom the situation is more desperate. And so we have Charlotte Lucas. Now, Charlotte Lucas is 28, which was seen as really old to get married at that point, seen as really past it over the hill. If you think about it, young ladies were introduced into society um, 
at a fairly young age, maybe about 16, 16 to 18. And from the point in which they were introduced into society, for example, at a ball, they were seen as a prospective marriage partner for somebody. So for Charlotte to be 28, presumably she's been out in public for 10 to 12 years and to have not been selected um, as anyone's wife by that point, she would have been seen as well and truly on the shelf. Um, a subject which Mrs. Bennett very tactlessly um, alludes to several points in the novel. Now, this helps us understand what happens in the plot with Mr. Collins. Okay, so Mr. Collins, the clergyman who the estate is entailed to, turns up and, of course, is a completely ridiculous character. He's obsequious, um, fawning, flattering, full of pride. Um, he's just a bit of a ridiculous character. And um, in chapter 19, when he proposes to Elizabeth, um, it is a fantastic example of Austen's comedy in the very long-winded speech he gives about his reasons for matrimony, um, none of which really include any genuine feeling for Elizabeth, although he does attempt to persuade her that, that this is so. More of a sense of self-importance and a sense of um, that he's doing the right thing by marrying um, one of the daughters from whom he's receiving the estate from. Um, but basically, Collins cannot fathom that Elizabeth might refuse him. Um, and this is purely because of her economic situation. Um, as the chapter goes on in chapter 19, Collins sort of believes that Elizabeth is giving him a false refusal, a sort of game where she's saying no but really she means yes um and um elizabeth says um really mr collins you puzzle me exceedingly if what i have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement i know not how to express my refusal in such a way as may convince you of its being one and Collins replies, you must give me leave to flatter myself, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my addresses is merely words, of course. My reasons for believing it are briefly these. It does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy your acceptance, or that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Burg, and my relationship to your own are circumstances highly in my favour. You should take it into further, further consideration that in spite of your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. So Mr. Collins clearly sees himself as um, being accepted by Elizabeth because he cannot fathom that she would reject him given her financial constraints. Now, of course, Elizabeth, with her sense of integrity, um, could not possibly accept Mr. Collins. But her friend Charlotte Lucas does. And in one of the kind of turning points of the novel, um, in chapter 22, we find out that Charlotte has accepted Mr. Collins. Um, there's a lovely piece of narrative irony at the very beginning of the chapter when it discusses um, Charlotte's keenness to engage Mr. Collins, which Elizabeth initially thinks is just an act of kindness to distract Mr. Collins from herself. 
Um, it says this, Charlotte assured her friend of her satisfaction in being useful and it amply repaid her for the little sacrifice of her time. This was very amiable, but Charlotte's kindness extended farther than Elizabeth had any conception of. Its object was nothing less than to secure her from any return of Mr. Collins' addresses by engaging them towards herself. Such was Miss Lucas's scheme. Um, and then it goes on to say about how um, Mr. Collins hastened to Lucas Lodge to throw himself at her feet. Now, the thing is, Austin makes it really clear that Miss Lucas accepted him solely from the pure and disinterested desire of an establishment. She has no other reason to accept Mr. Collins. Um, And Elizabeth really finds this very difficult to process. The narrative says this, and I think at this point the narrative is focalised through Elizabeth's perspective. Mr. Collins, to be sure, was neither sensible nor agreeable. His society was irksome and his attachment to her must be imaginary. But still, he would be her husband. Without thinking highly either of men or of matrimony, marriage had always been her object. It was the only honourable provision for well-educated young women of small fortune. And however uncertain the given happiness must be their pleasantest preservative from want. So it seems to me that um, Charlotte Lucas's plight is there to show the situation of poor single women that she ends up marrying Collins. Now, what's interesting is as later on, obviously, Elizabeth visits them in Kent, Charlotte doesn't seem to show any signs of regretting her choice. She actually seems very happy to have established her own household. She arranges it so that Collins is pretty much out of the way most of the time. And she appreciates the fact that she is secure. She has a very comfortable future. So perhaps it's an interesting thing in the novel. Had Austin allowed us to to see any regret from Charlotte, maybe we could um, get uh, another conclusion. But actually... Austin kind of leaves it leaves it as a picture with us of marriage and convenience, but doesn't allow us to maybe dismiss it as heartily as Elizabeth herself initially does. Now, moving on from looking at um, Charlotte Lucas, there is obviously another major situation in the novel that shocks the reader and shows us again the plight of poor single women. That is of Lydia Bennett. Now, Lydia Bennett is a girl without sense, without any fortune, and of course falls prey to Wickham. Wickham is having to leave um, wherever he's based because of debts, and decides to sort of let Lydia tag along just for the fun of it. He doesn't have any intention of marrying her, and obviously her reputation would be completely destroyed by such a liaison. Um, But Lydia thoughtlessly just jumps on the wagon with him and, and goes off. And of course, there's no inducement for Wickham to marry Lydia, because actually what he later reveals to Darcy under pressure is that he still wants to marry an heiress. Wickham's plan to solve his problems of not really having a fortune and having all this debt is to marry an heiress, a woman with, say, £30,000, and then that would pay off his debts and enable him to live comfortably the life of extravagance that he requires without any work on his part. So eventually, Darcy, of course, comes in to save the day. Um, 
Darcy puts down an incredible amount of money considering what Wickham has already received in terms of he got paid off by £3,000 because he didn't, he didn't want the living as the clergyman. Um, the whole situation um, with Darcy's sister, Georgiana, Darcy overlooks all this in order to secure Lydia's marriage to Wickham. And the reason he does this is for Elizabeth because he knows Elizabeth will be so devastated by her sister's disgrace. So Darcy, it is rumoured in the novel, pays about £10,000 to sort of settle Wickham and get him to just go off and marry Lydia. Um, and, you know, in those days, that sum of money is is just incredible. Um, that's obviously one entire annual income for Darcy. It's a, it's a huge amount of money. And it, it's what really changes, I think, Elizabeth's regard for Darcy is the fact that she finds out that he does that for her. Um, but in most situations, someone like Lydia would be lost forever in terms of her character would be um, irredeemable. She would probably be sent by her family to live in seclusion, would never be admitted into polite society again. She would never be able to show her face in a ballroom. She would never be invited to tea at anybody's house. She would be a complete social recluse for the rest of her life. Um, so obviously the Darcy's are few and far between most women in that situation who are poor and single, taken advantage of by, um, a man left high and dry would end up in absolute seclusion and social rejection. Um, and there was no real redemption for them. Once a woman lost her reputation, that was it. This is a great you know, a great plight for poor single women who often find themselves abused by those in power over them and exploited for their own naivety. Then, obviously, what the novel does by the end is shows us the happy endings for Elizabeth and Jane because they are poor single women, but they both end up making very, very good, secure financial matches, which is, I think is seen as a reward for their good character and their morality and the way that they've behaved. Um, there doesn't really ever seem a point in the novel where either of them are worried that it will never happen for them. Jane is good looking enough. Elizabeth isn't isn't particularly bothered at this stage. Um, but I think Austen has said enough in the novel about the plight of women that we feel all too keenly the fact that in reality the Bingleys and the Darcys are few and far between. And even where the Bingleys and the Darcys exist, the likelihood of them choosing someone from as low a social status as the Bennett family is pretty fantastical. So Austen gives the reader what we desire for a happy narrative conclusion. But I think she also leaves us with that uncomfortable sense of in real life, we know that could never happen. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please hit subscribe and share it with a friend. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Teach Me Lit. I'm always open to requests. So if you want me to talk about a text you're studying, get in touch. Thank you for listening. See you next time on the Teach Me Lit podcast.